This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. There has to come a teaching and a discipleship of a congregation. Here's what you look for in me. If you see these things being said or these things being done, then I need you to call me on it, along with a group of people who have legitimate credibility and authority in that leader's life. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues facing our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. Today on our show, we're going to talk about how the crisis of sexual abuse has come to the International House of Prayer. Then Mike Pence bows out, Nikki is having a moment, and does any of this matter? Finally, we'll be joined by journalist and filmmaker Robert Abbott to talk about the legacy of Bobby Knight, who passed away this Wednesday. Stay with us. Earlier this week, the founder of the International House of Prayer, Mike Bickle, was accused of clergy sexual abuse. Bickle began his ministry as a pastor in Kansas City in the 80s and 90s. His church left the vineyard denomination in the mid-90s as Bickle grew more charismatic and began to hold different views on prophecy and intercession. At the time, Bickle had been affiliated with local prophets. This is the time of the Kansas City prophets, that phenomenon that took place around then. And including Paul Kane and Bob Jones, who both ended up in scandal. Jones, no relation to the university, went on to admit sexual misconduct and spiritual abuse, and Kane was disciplined over homosexual behavior and alcoholism. Here we are again, and Russell, it's been, I want to say it's been five years since you hosted a conference for the ERLC to really start to bring attention to sexual abuse in the church and in the SBC in particular. Here we are now. The International House of Prayer is a movement that has a tremendous amount of influence, especially worldwide influence. People come from all over to gather here, to worship in this building, to pray in this building. They'll spend days, weeks, months there. I know people who've gone there as a pilgrimage who aren't necessarily even that charismatic. They just, they've heard the stories, they want to be there for it. And now you have a pretty devastating story that has come out. How do we think about this phenomenon on the heels of all the others we've seen so far? One of the things that I have always tried to take on is this idea that if you just correct a particular theological or church government structure, then you're going to eliminate sexual abuse. And the reason that worries me is because that enables a really naive view of the way that these systems and and power can be used. So if you have, for instance, in the Roman Catholic sex abuse crisis, That was enabled by a very hierarchical form of government where things could be covered up. In Southern Baptist context, it is empowered by autonomous churches where there's not bishops. So you can weaponize any of these things. And in this case, there is a special sort of vulnerability to a sense of I am God's prophet, Mm. And I have a word directly from God. And if you're out of step with the prophet, you're out of step with God. All of those things have been used time and time again, along with a great tolerance in a lot of 
extremely charismatic sort of sex for S-E-C-T-S of all kinds of misbehavior mm-hmm. and a, a return to the pulpit after that. So it doesn't mean that this movement is any more given to sexual abuse. It means that there's a pattern by which Mm-hmm. this movement would become involved in these kinds of, of sexual and, and spiritual abuse that is sometimes different from the ways other people do. And so that's really what I think is unique here. It's always awful, mm-hmm. but in many cases, in this kind of context, you have survivors who are being told, not just you're going against the institution, you're hurting what God's doing in the world. And, and that was often in my background denomination. It was, if you talk about this, you're going you're gonna to hurt the missionaries. Yes. And then the missionaries aren't going to be able to share the gospel. So that's the way that you cover things up. In this context, it's usually, if you come against this, you're coming against God's anointed. Mm-hmm. And if you come against God's anointed, you're coming against God. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, is probably a a unique angle here. And I wish that it were more unique. Wouldn't it be great to have a situation where there's not some sort of weaponization of spiritual authority for sexual purposes, Mm -hmm. allegations happening every Mm -hmm. single week? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish that this issue or this case were more isolated but it just, it's like once a, an issue like this of sexual abuse, of violence, particularly of a person in power in the spiritual position, once it rises up, it's like it reminds you there is a ton under this little little tip of the iceberg is nothing compared to what's happening. And when you unpeel the layers of this case, what strikes me is not just the idolization that takes place of the person in power, but the other people that person has empowered and how they abuse their power. And I have to confess to you, when I first read about this case, I confused it with the United Houses of Prayer, which is a totally different, but mm-hmm. not so different group. This is more the Daddy Grace days. But Russell, to your point, it's a similar situation of making the leader, the founder, the head charismatic person, that person is akin to God. So going against that person is going against God. The same thing is happening globally when you look at some of the charismatic African churches. And this is not obviously to characterize all charismatic African churches, but there are a few where the leader rises up and that leader uses words and essentially says, I am God. I have heard from God. I'm the only one who can hear from God. And therefore to go against me is to go against God. So I just, there's so many layers of grief, but I do wonder, is this situation going to change anything? Is some leader going to read this news and say, oh man, I better get myself right with Jesus. Or is it just going to be, we better do a better job of covering up because if it could happen here, it could happen to us. Especially because these allegations are news, but they're not shockingly off-brand in the same way that there really weren't any people saying, I think Mark Driscoll was a Mm -hmm. humble, godly, fruit of the spirit, gentle guy. I'm shocked to find out (laughs) what he was doing. No, everybody's, yeah, it's Mark Driscoll. Mm. We we didn't know what was going on, but you can see in this guy, there was a pastor in my denomination who came to me years ago and said, really would like to get you together with the guys at IHOP. I thought he meant a breakfast meeting, and I was perfectly <laughs> happy with that. And he said, no, but the Inter- International House of Prayer. And I said, I'm not going to meet with them, even if you set it up. These are hucksters and grifters. 
obviously. And he said, yeah, but you can do things together. And I said, anything that I would be doing with those guys is something I shouldn't be doing. I, I'm mm. not going to, I'm not going to do, do it. You could, in this case, it is the case that we didn't know that there was that kind of sexually abusive behavior going on, but we did know yes. that there was manipulative mm -hmm grifting going mm -hmm. on in a lot of these movements that claim that level of direct yeah. prophetic ability. Now, yeah. again, yeah. I just had a conversation with Christine Kane. She and I disagree a little bit about how prophecy continues to work, but the viewpoint that she's espousing, which is the mainstream Pentecostal charismatic view of those things is not outside the bounds of anything. But it's when it is used in a way that claims an, an authority that is not, I think that what God is saying to me is, let's discern together if that's the case. It's not here I am and here's what I'm saying and, and believe it. You can see that and recognize it. There's a sense in which all of these abuse cases, all of this, whether it's spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, other kinds of abuse cases inside the church, like they all speak to this crisis of authority. And certainly they all speak to abuses of authority. One of the things that I think is interesting about a case like this is, like you say, like it's very easy to look at it and go... You have someone here who has positioned themselves in a place where they're able to say, thus saith the Lord, and there's no real check on that kind of power inside mm -hmm. the church. But what I think I have come to believe, and this is after looking at all kinds of churches, different denominations, like you were saying earlier on, different forms of church government, different emphases in the church, it seems to me that someone with the intent to abuse authority will find a way to create those exact set of conditions, whether it's a congregational church where everybody gets a vote, and if they really wanted to fire the pastor on any random Sunday morning, someone would just have to make a motion after church, and they could do it. But the pastor has this way in that very sort of low church Baptist setting of establishing the pulpit and themselves and this authority of the pastor and this deference towards the preached word and all of this that kind of creates a similar mystique of who are you to question the pastor? Who are you to question the man of God and the man of the word and all of this? And it's profoundly devastating and I, in terms of its impact. So I guess I say that to say, like, how then do you think about whether you're a person in the pews going, how do I trust the guy in charge or the, the woman in charge or the woman preaching or the man preaching or whatever? And or if you're the pastor, go, how do I not become this? How do mm -hmm. I assert mm -hmm. authority as a leader and say, I really believe the Lord is saying these things to us in his word without going, also, how dare you? Who the hell do you think you are for mm -hmm. questioning me? Mm -hmm. One of the ways with the, that second part of it is what you do in a werewolf movie when you say, tie me up to the radiator in the basement when the full moon comes, and doesn't matter how much I beg you, don't <laughs> let me out. That There has to come a teaching and a discipleship of a congregation. Here's what you look for mm. in me. Mm. If you see these things being said or these things being done, then I need you to call me on it, along with a group of people who have legitimate credibility and authority in that leader's life. There's no foolproof way to deal with any of this, yeah. but, but start. Yeah. No. And one of the things 
Mike, that you said is something I've been thinking through for a long time. Is it that there are certain personalities and people who will abuse power no matter where they are, and they will create systems around them, be it churches or other things, to affirm what's already in them? Or is it a slow, slippery slope that an innocent person of the gospel who genuinely, authentically just wants to serve God gradually falls into this place where they stop wanting to be questioned, where they stop wanting to be held accountable. And I think it depends on the person, so it's probably both. But I would say there there has to be a certain amount of not only chain me up to the radiator, but also I'm going to covenant with people that I know will tell me the truth. And that feels like such a big issue in our society. There used to be a time where your spouse was that person. If a man was married, if a woman was married, you could count on their spouse to say, honey, what you said in the pulpit was just wrong or Mm -hmm. what you did to that person. I'm a pastor's kid. My dad would meet with people after church for hours. I'm still getting over just the trauma of waiting for my dad (laughs) after church. But if he met with a woman, my mother was there. There were certain accountabilities that were put in place. And I just wonder in this society where we don't want to be told no, nobody, regardless of our personality, we don't want to be told no, is the slippery slope even faster now? When a person becomes a pastor, is the church saying, no, you, we trust you. You got this. Is it that easy? Or is accountability just, I don't know. I don't know if anybody wants to be accountable. I think there there are definitely probably cases of people who start out in a good place mm-hmm. and as time and pressure works, end up in a bad place. I know that's the case, but it almost is never what I see. Mm. Instead, I see people who have been blaring out warning signs all through their ministries. But the problem is that the people who are most likely to see that are also the people who are most likely to check themselves. That's right. And to say, maybe I'm just being judgmental Mm -hmm. or maybe I'm being divisive, Mm. maybe those sorts of things. And so they just check themselves and that leader is not. And so Mm -hmm. that's not an Mm. equal, that's not an equal footing. Hmm. Good point. This reminds me of two things as we're talking about this. One was something Tim Keller once said, where he said, a lot of people say, how do you guard yourself as a pastor? And it's the relationship with your elders or it's the relationship with your wife or whatever. He said the most fascinating thing. He goes, I can lie to anybody. I could lie to my elders. I could lie to my wife. I could hide things. I could do it for a very, very long time. And I could do a lot of damage. He said, what I've come to believe is the most important thing for me to not become that is to become so enamored with the presence of Christ that the fear of losing that sense of intimacy and communion Mm. by betraying it is much more frightening than the allure of sin. So I think of that, and I think that's a beautiful, profound thing, and it's an incredibly challenging thing to go, the answer to narcissism and our temptations to abuse authority is spiritual communion and a contemplative prayer life. I'm like, amen, let's figure out how to make that a movement. But also you can't market that and you can't make that a movement. That's a very intimate thing. The other thing I think about, and this is one of my favorite quotes of all time, is Chuck DeGroat. Somebody asked Chuck DeGroat this question in a similar way. And Chuck said, you've got to be able to invite people into your life and whether they're your coworkers, the people who work for you, people who work with you, not just your friends, but like a large group of people, and you need to be able to invite them into your life and ask them, how do you experience me? And then mm. believe what they tell you. 
He said, the last part's the hardest part. Pastors love to get the 360 review. Tell me how you think I'm doing. Tell me about my review and all of this. But then they find ways to very quickly check down the list and justify. He said this because of that. And she said this because of that or whatever. And Chuck's point is believe what they tell you because they're going to tell you the truth. And if it hurts, that's a good thing. Let it hurt and follow the lead from there. And, you know, I think what Tim meant there is not have a better prayer life and this will take care of itself. I think what he's saying to people is there's not a checklist that you can go through that you can't find a way to game. And so instead of that, rather than just resting in that, you also have to be working on that inner person of the heart. I think that's, I think he would have had different counsel if he's talking to a congregation. What do you look for in your pastor? than he is for the kind of pastor, and there are a lot of them, who think, how do I know that I'm not going to end up like that? Mm-hmm. How do I know mm-hmm. that? And, and sometimes they think, okay, just give me the list of things to do that will keep that away. And it's not just don't do this and don't do that, although that's true, because you can find a way to footnote your way through any prohibition. You also have to be a certain kind of person. And that doesn't just happen in the moment. That happens over time and and before some of these temptations and challenges come up. Yeah, being this close to Reformation Day, maybe a good place to end is Luther's famous quote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So it's been an interesting week in the presidential race. Trump has 43%, according to the the latest Des Moines Register poll in Iowa. Also in that poll, we're seeing a surge for Nikki Haley. She's now tied Ron DeSantis there at 16%. Tim Scott is down from 9 to 7%. 
former Governor Chris Christie is tied with Vivek Ramaswamy at 4%. And of course, the biggest news this week in the race is that somebody finally got out. Mike Pence quit the race this week. There's other stuff we're going to talk about related to all of this. But let me just pause there and throw it to you, Russell Moore. Does any of this matter? It matters in terms of an illustration of just how much has changed. If you think about in 2016, Trump picked Mike Pence because that would be a reassurance to the typical Reaganite fusion of social conservatives, particularly evangelical Christians, with defense hawks, with with capitalist laissez-faire sorts of types. And that was a reassurance. That reassurance is no longer needed. And so there were at many points, Mike Murphy, the Republican consultant, used to say to about Mike Pence, if you have to have security to go into a Republican event, you're probably not going to win the Republican nomination. Mm. And I think that has really been telling. And I say this as someone who everybody knows what I think about Trump. I genuinely like Mike Pence, whatever agreements or disagreements someone couldn't have with him. I think that he is genuinely a person of good character and competence. And I think that what happened during the Trump years, one of the things I would note is spending a lot of time with Mike Pence, he never was disloyal to President Trump privately or publicly. And so it wasn't as though he would come out like a lot of these politicians do and say, oh, we're so glad, President Trump, for your broad shoulders, and then come behind the scenes and say, oh, the guy's crazy. He never did that. As a matter of fact, he was always trying to talk me into, come on, look at this side of him and so forth. So I think he really wanted to be a George H.W. Bush vice president who respected lines of authority. Now, that ended up being manifest in ways that I didn't like and never would have wanted done. But at that pivotal moment on January 6th, when he's asked to defy his oath of office, and essentially in that moment, the question is whether or not to destroy American democracy, he didn't do it. And the reason he didn't do it, if you look at both Mike Pence and Mitt Romney in this moment, becoming pariahs to their party and destroying their careers ultimately had to do with how they view oaths before God and took those things very seriously. And so I think that he will be remembered for that. Ultimately, though, whoever's in and whoever's out, the Republican primary process is not going to be surprising to anybody. Nicole, a phrase we've heard a lot with regard to Mike Pence is zombie Reaganism. This idea that he represents this bygone era and the positive imagery that he would use in his speeches versus what someone in the most recent debates, Vivek Ramaswamy's approach, which was much more along the lines of Donald Trump's sort of American carnage. Given that there is still a certain fascination with Ramaswamy among younger evangelicals and younger conservatives, why do you think that positive message of it's morning in America that made Reagan so loved and popular just failed so badly in this season? I mean, that is an excellent question. I struggle with rationalizing the appeal of a positive message when it is very clear that people don't care about a positive message. They do not care that there's hope for America, because whether we like it or not, 
I think the message of the world right now with everything that's happening around us is not good. And if you're not careful, coming out with a it's going to get better message for a generation that's surrounded by bad news can make you sound a little tone deaf. I was wondering for both of you, with Pence out of the race, why isn't everyone backing down? Is it worth it? Are they running on principle? Are they running Mm -hmm. because they really think they might win? Or is it just practice? What happens at this stage? I think of the folks that are left, the vast majority of them, I don't know why they're in there anymore either. Mm -hmm. Because I think we're down to eight at this point Mm -hmm. that are still running, if you include Doug Burgum and yeah, there's others. (laughs) But so I I don't know why most of them are in there. It seems Trump has this hold when people look at his numbers, like where would people go if they left Trump? A lot of people would basically say we we bow out. We don't like any of these people. They don't do for us what Trump did. And then you see this other phenomenon where, you know, now Robert Kennedy is running as an independent and you see some movement from Trump to Kennedy as an independent. The reason people are still in it is they're going, Trump's at 43. That means there's 57 that somebody else could get if all these other losers will drop out Mm. and throw their votes and throw their support to me. The problem for Nikki Haley is that you don't necessarily see if, for instance, if Ron DeSantis were to drop out, it's not like Ron DeSantis's 16% goes to Haley. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I think the numbers that I saw, it was somewhere between 60 and 70% of those votes would go to Trump. And so I think everyone's hanging in there hoping, okay, there's a 57% that's not going to vote for him or that isn't as of right now. Can I get a big enough piece of that to knock him out of the race? Is one of these lawsuits or, or, or some of these criminal charges going to knock that number down a little more? Is he more vulnerable than he seems? I think that's why they're hanging in. But if it's an optimism question, there's a lot of optimism going on to keep him in there. <laughs> Wait, well, what are the criminal charges that finally push that over the edge? But I think Nikki Haley's theory of the case, when she is tough. She is a tough person. She also is a very politically gifted person. I think her theory of the case is Ron DeSantis is not going to get out because he has plenty of money. And you're right. If DeSantis leaves, a majority of those votes go to Trump. So what she wants to do is to consolidate the people who are saying, ah, do we really want to do this again? The sort of people who are just saying, ah, it's just so much drama and I'm tired of all the fights in my family. Could we do something else? Her case is maybe there's enough of those people in Iowa and in New Hampshire, especially because you don't have a Democratic caucus in Iowa, so Democrats can re-register and participate in the Republican caucuses. In New Hampshire, it's an open primary. Uh, Independents and Democrats can vote in that. So do you have that as well in a way that can really make a mark in those early contests and then move on? That's her theory of the case. I don't think that will work. I will be more than happy to be wrong, and I will gladly say that and pump my fist in the air (laughs) if I am wrong. Right. I think that's what she's thinking. I don't think she is delusional. She really sees a Hail Mary path here that Mm -hmm. she's going to follow. The other thing you have happening in New Hampshire is Biden's not on the ballot because Biden's skipping the New Hampshire primary for a variety of reasons in terms of the way the Democratic primaries have been structured this year. And so a lot of Democrats, since it is an open primary, can show up on primary day and vote in that Republican primary. And nobody really knows what could happen. Is Pence now, is the next statement going to be, and now I support Trump? Or is it going to be, and now I support? And when others step out of the race, are they going to support Trump? 
I don't know what that looks like. I think what's happening right now is that there are a lot of people who are trying to achieve what happened at that pivotal moment right after the South Carolina primary in the Democratic race in 2020, which is Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, who was already out of the mm-hmm. race, but who to endorse and all get behind Joe Biden because they realize, okay, we're looking at Bernie Sanders mm. in a general election and we know what where that leads. So let's give this cascade of support. I don't think that works though in a Republican primary because the the situation is just completely different. There isn't a Bernie Sanders cult of personality mm. except for a really small little group of uh, 25-year-olds in the Democratic Party. That's different. And I think one of the things that people are looking at past situations and saying, 2016, Trump lost the Iowa caucuses because of uh, evangelicals who came out to vote for Ted Cruz, and he won, and also for Ben Carson and so forth. What has changed, and this kind of goes back to Pence, is that's not how evangelical activists vote anymore. You don't need Trump, if he's the nominee and he announces whoever his vice president is, he doesn't need to say, oh, you can really trust me because I have this person that you know to be born again and to have good character and to be really solid on the issues you care about. He does not need to do that with the people to whom he's appealing. So that has just changed completely from 2016 to now. And if we still use that rubric that we had back then, we're not going to understand what's happening today. I do come back to this idea. You said what charges would possibly change the race? Because another aspect of what I wanted to just call out in this conversation, last week you had four Trump allies, including Jenna Ellis, his former attorney, along with Kenneth Chesborough, Scott Hall, Sidney Powell. They all came to plea deals in Georgia which was somewhat of a surprise. And then in the Jack Smith special counsel prosecution of Trump over his charges related to overturning the 2020 election, the January 6th riots, Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, was granted immunity after making some sort of plea deal with the prosecution. And so, I, again, you said earlier, what could possibly change their minds? I don't know. Everyone turning on his own team turning on. Will it matter? Will it make a difference? But that's been going on for years. Look at the Trump administration officials who Trump says are losers and chokers and liars and incompetent and slobs and so forth. It's almost all of them. (laughs) <laughs> and almost everybody say, I'm like wait, who does not that include at this point? I know and almost everybody who served in the administration will say this was insanity I couldn't do it so you already mm-hmm. have that I think that the real question is going to be when you look at these trials you do see that these people turning because these are serious charges and look very clearly as though there are all the receipts that are needed. What that brings about, though, is a yawn from the Trump base, and it Mm. brings about a kind of desperation for Trump himself because he essentially knows in the spring of 2025, he is either going to be meeting with his evangelical advisory board in the Oval Office or he's going to be meeting with the prison ministry. Mm. It's, it's one or the other. And so that brings a kind of desperation, which is to say, I have to win. 
in a way that's not just my ego has to win. Mm. It's I have to win as some sort of existential protection. And then you add to that the language that's being used of retribution. He is saying, I will use the Department of Justice to prosecute the people who are opposed to me. I will use the pardon power to pardon January 6th seditionists. Nobody's paying any real attention to that. But he's able to say, if he's elected president, I said all this beforehand Mm -hmm. and people Mm -hmm. elected me anyway. So that's, I think, what is very different about this year from other years. I'll add one attempted optimism, which is this, everything you're saying is true. But when I think about the primary and I think about DeSantis and and Haley sitting there going, we're waiting for something to collapse. The one thing that is most unpredictable about all of this is Donald Trump himself. You don't know what he's going to say on the stand. You don't know what he's going to say on Truth Social. You don't know what he's going to say to a judge. You don't know what he's going to outburst with in court or anything. Anything could happen at any moment. I think there are some people who are saying anything could happen and there could be some sort of health event. But apart from that, even suppose Nikki Haley wins the primaries. I don't think it's going to happen. But suppose she does. Do you think that Donald Trump is going to stand up and say, we fought a good fight. Let's all unite behind (laughs) Nikki Haley and support (laughs) her? No, he's going to be saying the nomination was stolen from me and we need to not support her and support Robert F. Kennedy or something else, do something along those lines. That's what's going to happen. They knew that in 2016, which is one of the reasons why a lot of these Republican national officials who all, all thought that Trump was a disaster Mm -hmm. would say, we've got to handle this very gently because if we don't, he's going to be running an independent race or he's going to be telling people, you can't trust the election. The election's rigged. Don't show up and vote. And he did that in the Mm -hmm. Georgia special election Senate races on January the 5th of 2020. Can't trust the vote. And a lot of people said, why would I go and vote in a rigged election? Mm -hmm. And his Mm -hmm. people stayed home. That's the real obstacle that's being faced here. So I'm optimistic. So much for that optimism. I'm optimistic too. But my optimism is Jesus could come back. (laughs) Any Any day now. Please let Jesus. That's the optimism. (laughs) On that note... We will be right back. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. 
You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Late Wednesday, word broke that Bobby Knight, the basketball coaching legend, passed away at the age of 83. He had 902 wins in 42 seasons, the majority of which he spent at Indiana University. He also won three championships for IU, including an undefeated team that won in the 75-76 season. He also coached the U.S. men's basketball team to a gold medal in 1984. Knight was a tremendously controversial figure, where today most coaches and athletes try to avoid speaking their minds to the press. Knight always spoke his mind, for better and often for worse. He was also prone to streaks of violence, throwing chairs, grabbing players. He was eventually fired from IU in 2000 over a series of allegations of abusive behavior. He went on to coach at Texas Tech until retiring in 2008. To me, Knight exemplifies what makes human beings both fascinating and terrifying. And this is actually why I featured Knight's story on an episode of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill a few years ago, in order to talk about this problem of difficult men and their enablers. Today, over at The Athletic, Seth Davis has written a brilliant remembrance of the coach's complicated legacy. It opens with a quote that sums Bobby Knight up very well. It was from 1994. Bobby Knight said, when my time on earth is gone and when my activities here are past, I want them to bury me upside down and my critics can kiss my ass. Joining us today to talk about this story is Robert Abbott, a journalist, filmmaker, and TV producer whose work has appeared on CNN and ESPN. His reporting on abuse allegations at IU in 2000 led to the surfacing of a variety of allegations about Knight, including footage of Bobby Knight choking a player named Neil Reed. Robert revisited that story on an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary in 2018 called The Last Days of Night. Robert Abbott, welcome to The Bulletin. Happy to be here. So I want to frame this story in the broader conversation about the legacies of complicated or fallen figures. But first, can you describe a little bit about how you ended up covering the Night story in the 1990s? Back in 1999, I got called into my boss, Steve Robinson's office. This was right after Luke Recker who was a Mr. Indiana basketball player. He was a sophomore. He had just announced he was leaving the school. And Steve, who used to head up investigations for Sports Illustrated and was the managing editor of CNNSI, he said, I want you to go up and see why three high school All-Americans have left Indiana's program in less than two years. I walked out of his office not very excited, to say the least. I didn't think it was much of a story. We discussed the fact that it may be a story about athlete entitlement and these kids who became famous in the AAU at 14, 15, 16, 17, just couldn't play for a coach like Bob Knight. And so I wasn't really excited. It was really a simple question. And most great investigations start by a simple question. And then it just starts to unravel and unravel. I spoke to Neil Reed two days later, three days later, and his father And he basically said Coach Knight had choked him. He had seen him kick the president out of practice. And he had seen Coach Knight at one point come out of a bathroom stall with his pants around his ankles with soiled toilet paper and say, you're playing like And from that, I was like, my eyes widened like Russell's just did. Wow. (laughs) If this is true, there's a story here. So it took me a year to pursue it and get people to go on camera But it didn't start as an investigation. It started as a simple question. Why are kids leaving Indiana a coach who's a legend, who is already in the Basketball Hall of Fame at that point? 
And I think part of what is helpful to remember about Knight's story, too, is that he clearly had this reputation for volatility, but he also had this reputation, the quote was always winning the right way, right? Can you talk about what that meant and that strange contrast and how those two ideas played off each other? That's what makes Knight such a fascinating and complicating figure. He embodies kind of everything you want in a coach. It's about team versus me or I, playing defense, working hard. All of his kids went to class. For the most part, they all graduated, got good grades. He didn't break the rules. There's so many qualities that if you were going to hire a coach, you'd say, hey, I want this one. He checked every box. He checked pretty much every box of what is good and right and correct. The problem was he had an anger management issue, and it was his way or the highway. And what people don't understand is that he coached at Army in the late 60s, and that's when kids were going to war in Vietnam. But you can't coach in the 2000s like you did in 1965 at Army. And Knight never changed. That's what his downfall was. And it's what led to his undoing. Basically, in the 90s, when his teams weren't winning, it was, it can't be me. I've won three national titles and Olympic gold medal. It must be you. Whereas in the 70s, he would destroy you. He would break you down like they do in the military. They break you down to nothing and build you back up into what they want you to be. Back in the 70s and 80s, he'd throw his arm around a player, and one line would get the player to run through a wall for him the next day. He could treat him like garbage for three weeks, and then he'd throw his arm around him. And he'd reel them back in. And when you won national titles, you reeled them all back in. When he stopped winning national titles and winning in the tournament, he wasn't reeling them back in. So it wasn't the, the kids were questioning, why should I put up with this? Robert, when you say he never changed, this wasn't then a situation of the pressures of the burdens of winning and a more high profile life coming at him. This genuinely was just who he was all along. It's part of why I love Coach Knight, because he was who he was, and he didn't try to hide it. To your point, the game got bigger, there was more intensity, there was more pressure, but he was the same guy. I think the only thing that changed was when he wasn't winning, he was frustrated. When his frustration happened, his anger came out. I think he got a little meaner towards his players, or he wouldn't let them in to see his kinder side. He did have an amazingly kind, loving human side, but he didn't let the players in. A lot of the players in the 90s said, I never had a personal relationship with him, period. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you look back, a lot of the players in the 70s and 80s have had a lifelong relationship with him. Isn't there a certain amount of maybe privilege that's afforded to him as a coach, as a person in sports that allows us to revere him and then still say he has an anger problem, whereas in any other field and perhaps any other person, that level of anger would be demonized. I can't help but think earlier this year with Angel Reese, who was taunting another player. Now, this is different because we're not talking coaches. This was players. But she was deeply criticized for having an anger problem for taunting another player. And she may not be as revered as Bobby Knight, who strangled someone, but oh boy, didn't he win those games. <laughs> what do we make of this kind of allowance that we give to certain people that we can dismiss what feels like something major for some people so that we can lift up what feels like legendary status? It was the way of the world back then. 
the world has changed. When I first got the tape and I first brought it into CNN and gave it to my boss, Steve Robinson, we walked into an edit room and showed him Coach Knight putting his hand around Neil's throat. He literally said, if that happened here at CNN, you would be fired instantaneously. Yeah. That was his immediate reaction. And Jim Walton, mm-hmm. who was the president of sports, went on to become the president of CNN. He entered the room as well. And he said, if, if that happened here, you'd be fired on the spot. Yeah. In sports, we allow things to happen. We allow coaches to act like idiots on the sideline. We allow players to do things because we think the passion and intensity it takes to play that you should have a wider berth of what you're allowed to do. Lou Holtz at Notre Dame was famous for grabbing a player's face mask and pulling him to him and chewing him out. Today, I don't think it would be tolerated. I think times have changed. Almost immediately, when the story broke, there was definitely a sense of rallying tonight. I remember in whether it was 2012 or 2013 when they renamed Assembly Hall, there was this angst about we should name it after Bobby Knight. And there was a loud contingency that didn't want to do that. How do you think about the long-term legacy of a person like this? When I watched your documentary, I remember you talking about when you first interviewed the student that was choked, you talked about seeing the flash of trauma on his face and like how much it really affected you. This kid was really scared. This is real. This was real terror. Holding that on the one hand and then holding this, a man of his time, complicated thing. How do you process that when you think about who Knight was? I try not to judge people. And I think it makes me good as an investigator, because once you go in with preconceived notions, then you're, you have blind sides. And if I believe A, I always try to flip the script and go, okay, now I need to believe Z to be fair and equitable and just analyze the facts. And, and now that Knight's passed, he should be remembered for all those things. And I don't think you can label him as A or Z. He's in the middle like all of us. You look at the Bible and there's David, there's Moses, there's a number of people who were flawed human beings who ended up doing great things. How do you remember them? As a murderer or someone who led the Israelites? How do you remember them? As a drunk or a rapist or whatever? There's numerous people in the Bible that are like that. I'm not perfect. In my professional life, I'm really good at not judging people. My personal life, probably not so much. (laughs) But in my professional life, the only reason is because I've talked to people around me in what I do, and they say, people trust you because you don't judge them. And I'm like, really? Like, why do you think that? I like Coach Knight. I miss him. I'm sad that he's gone. I always wanted to talk to him one day about what had happened and what had transpired and say, I was never out to get you. I was asked by my boss to find out why three kids left. And from my point of view, he just kept denying it. And the only time I ever really got upset or challenged is probably a better word is when they questioned my journalism. Mm -hmm. When they questioned my journalism, because for those who don't know, I did like an 18 minute piece that alleged those three allegations. Indiana came back and everybody said it never happened. He never choked Neil Reed. He never came out of this. Never. And I took that as a personal affront. I don't put incorrect facts on the air. Just have never have, never will. I'm a journalist by nature. So I took that as a personal affront. And that's when I said, oh, you don't think this happened? I know it happened. Mm -hmm. I can't have eight people telling me chapter and verse the exact same thing and have it not have happened. Mm -hmm. So that's when I got the videotape of him joking. And then it led to his being dismissed and being fired. So my reporting led to him being fired, but that was never my goal. My, ne- my goal has always been, I think I end my film with, 
it was always the pursuit of truth. It's the pursuit of truth and, and keeping your humanity along the way. And that's what I'm proudest of, that I treated him just like I treated Neil Reed. I offered Coach Knight five different opportunities to sit down and do an interview, and he didn't. So when now that he's passed, I don't think you can say he's A, and I don't think you can say he's Z. He's not the saint who won three national titles and molded all these men into great human beings and or the guy who choked Neil Reed and wiped his mind and kicked the president out of practice and was mentally abusive and physically abusive and threw a pot at a secretary in the office. He's all of that. He's all of that. And really, he's in the middle, and that's how he should be remembered. He should be remembered for the great things he did, and he should be remembered for some of the not-so-great things he did, just like all of us. What you're offering is really a challenging, I'll call it an opportunity, because on the one hand, you're saying, we're going to let the truth speak for itself. The fact that you were able to draw video out, to me, the surprising part isn't that he was fired. The surprising part is that he was hired again. And as much as I would love to say this only happens in sports, we know that this happens in other places where people in power are kept and rehired because the outputs of what they do justify the means. But it's a challenging thing to say, we should all be remembered for all of our ups and downs. How do we do that in a society where the ends really do justify the means? And as long as you're winning games, that's the only thing that matters. And in fact, you'll get another job if a wise investigator calls you out for your bad behavior. And maybe I'm just stuck on that, but I can't help but see, Lord have mercy, as we apply these crazy principles to other fields, to ministry, to church, and we see it all the time. It reeks of both the clarity of the gospel with the complexity of the we're broken vessels and God fills us with his power. And also the world really doesn't care what you did as long as you win a game. I don't know what to make of that. Well, and to add to that, Nicole, part of what we see in a ministry context that's very similar to what we see in a sports context mm-hmm. is we recognize the problem and we will deal with it, but not right now. Not right now. Right now <laughs> we have winning. a championship to win or right <laughs> now right. we have a missions program that's to it. advance and we'll that's deal it. with it later. You bring up the term, do the ends justify the means? And in the book written by John Feinstein on Coach Night, it ends with Dave Kindred posing that question. And I, it was 1987. I had just graduated college. I was a big sports fan. I read the book in two days, A Season on the Brink. John Feinstein's book ends with Dave Kindred saying, do the ends justify the means? And as a kid just out of college, I closed the book and I said, yes. I had no idea 13 years later, my boss would call me into his office and it, in reality, what he was asking me to do is look into this and say to Coach Knight's ends justify the means anymore. Mm. And Miles mm. Brand and the Board of Trustees, after my reporting, decided that they didn't. But to your point, A, forgiveness is something that's all throughout the Bible, and mm-hmm. people do deserve a second chance. And we shouldn't be judged on just our worst moments. But as I always say, the last days of the night, the film I did on it, not my original reporting, the film 16 years later, is just about power, control, and abuse, and the abuse mm. of power. Mm-hmm. Basically, Indiana University looked the other way for 29 years. Mm-hmm. And when I brought it to the forefront, they had to deal with it. And when they dealt with it, they gave Coach Knight a second chance. I always thought zero tolerance was idiotic. I couldn't believe that they were giving him another chance. I actually think it was genius and brilliant on Miles Brand's part because he said, we're going to wipe the slate clean. And as long as you're good moving forward, we're not going to look back. 
And he basically gave Coach Knight the rope to hang himself. Mm-hmm. And he did. So Miles Brand could say, hey, I gave you a second chance. I gave you forgiveness. I gave you a chance. And in a perfect world, like the Disney ending to this story would have been that Coach Knight saw the light, got some counseling, went on to break Dean Smith's record at IU, but he didn't repent. He didn't repent at all. And the, and the people we mentioned earlier in the Bible, they all did repent. And they all went in to learn from their mistakes and move forward. I don't know if Coach Knight ever did. He was never wrong. It was always my way or the highway. You're wrong. I'm not. It's got to be your fault, not mine. And when he left Indiana, the ends didn't justify the means. At Texas Tech, a basketball program that wanted to get to the next level, the ends did justify the means. He sold out that arena more times than he was there than in the history of the school. So you start looking at the ends justify the means. He didn't have any outlandish. He had some outbursts here and there behind the scenes and publicly. But he was selling tickets and they made the NCAA tournament. So that question was answered differently by Texas Tech than it was Indiana. There's so many people out there where, hey, I can't go near them now, but let's let some time pass and they can make us a boatload of money and we'll bring them back out on the repentance tour, whether it's real or not. Mm. And if you can make money, people will give you not only a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth chance. Steve Howe played for the New York Yankees, a drug addict, right? Seven different times they gave him another chance. You know why? He could throw a fastball and a curveball and win games and put people in the seats and make you money. I'm going to look the other way. Same thing with Deshaun Watson at Cleveland. What surrounded him? I thought he was untouchable. Cleveland signed him for $240 million. I'm not saying he didn't deserve a second chance, but to deserve a second chance at that level, to pay a guy $240 million when that many women had alleged things against him, you just shake your head. It's all about power. I've learned a lot in the last 10 years on how power corrupts and how money corrupts and how everybody looks the other way when you're flawed. As a Catholic journalist was telling me one time about the sex abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church, it's hard to understand how much of it was about mutually assured destruction. I know what went on in your parish and your diocese. Don't mess with what's going on in mine. It becomes a den of thieves, right? Mm -hmm. It becomes a den of thieves. Hey, don't start throwing stones because I can throw them back. And then if you're going to bring down the golden goose, whether it's Bob Knight or a priest or Mars Hill, then we're all losing out. So let's prop the golden goose up as long Mm -hmm. as we can until the bottom Mm -hmm. falls out. And then you have to look in the mirror and be accountable to your own actions. What did I do? And I give Indiana University credit. I became friends with the head of the board of trustees and a number of vice presidents who were there forever. And one of them at the premiere of the film I was sitting there because he brought his whole family, grandkids and everything. And I'm like, this must be killing him. His whole (laughs) life was Indiana. And he walked up and he said, that was great. And it shocked me. Hmm. And he goes, you did us a favor. That should have happened long ago. So he ended up seeing how they had looked the other way and how it had happened. They didn't intentionally want it to happen. Very few Hmm. people really do. But you make a lot of minuscule decisions that lead you from A to Z, from good intentions to all of a sudden now we're propping up an immensely flawed golden goose. And then you start defending the golden goose when common sense tells you the golden goose should have been gone long ago. 
Robert, thank you so much for making time to this. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.